Hi, this is Alan Bodner, art director, and you're listening to Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. It's a great show, and we're so happy you're here. We talk all things Disney every single week. Pop culture, we talk about stories from behind the scenes of your favorite films, also theme park attractions, performances, books, and much, much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go. I am a musician, podcaster, lifelong Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and pop culturist, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, we have a great guest, producer Alice Dewey. Yes. Uh, I mean, she she's a great animator producer she just uh finished up with uh transylvania four yep um and i have to tell you i'm excited about talking with alice it's been a while since i've seen her absolutely first of all it's great that we have someone uh that has a lot to do with animation from all different studios right it's always great that she's doing that yeah and, and she's so integral especially during your time at the company yeah um, but also with a brand new film out like hotel transylvania for transfermania which was a lot of fun to watch so yeah and, she, and you know something she she was really one of the key players during the renaissance of disney animation back in the 90s 100 percent. so we're glad to have another great female um, in animation, doing her thing, and not to mention the fact that she's also an advocate for mentorship and working with females in the realm of animation, and really, you know, still con- uh, contributes in such a big way to the to the art form. So we're so a- happy. To absolutely, have her. very important topic: women in animation. Up one hundred ten percent. Hey, um, by the way, I got a great um, uh, email. What you got uh, another one of our? You got yeah, another from email? one of our listeners. Is that right? Am I, ju- am I, am I jumping ahead? Yes, you are, but that's okay. <laughs> Answer short email. Do it. <laughs> All right, man. So uh, you know, I got this really terrific email from Spencer. Oh, yeah. who lives in the United States. Uh, and uh, he says, my name is Spencer and I'm a big fan of the podcast and your books. Woo, woo, it appears woo. you may be open to episode ideas. And I wonder if you would ever consider discussing your work, producing the true life adventure DVD collection. Uh, well, yes, I would. I would be uh, up for talking. There's some great behind the scenes stories of putting that together. All the intros uh, that we did with Roy E. Disney. Uh, and he also he goes on to say, and especially how your work on the series couples with experiences at Walt Disney's Animal Kingdom. Well, to me, I think they're they interlock. So yeah, we we could actually, Al John, you and I could talk. Uh, maybe we'll do this in March. We could uh, yeah. just spend an entire episode tr- talking about True Life Adventures, the DVDs, and all of the stuff that I did on those uh, way back when. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, he goes, let's and he goes. By the way, he goes on to say, "I do not think the Walt Disney Company's work with animals or the Animal Kingdom are fully appreciated by most fans 
or the general public. And I imagine you have some great insights. I look forward to future episodes of the Skull Rock podcast. Well, so do we. And uh, yes, uh, I think that you're absolutely right, uh, Spencer. Uh, There's amazing stuff going on down at the Animal Kingdom. And again, I think we could touch on that, Hal John, when we do a whole episode on the True Life Adventures and the Animal Kingdom down in Walt Disney World. Yeah, 100%. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Spencer, thank you very much for your email. Thank you. And before we get into um, producer Alice Dewey's show uh, segment and the news, we we just need to do a quick pick of the week. I know, um, Dave, we we, we're doing this every week now. What have you been watching streaming? Well, I got to tell you, uh, I did after last week's show, I made it a point to watch Tinder Swindler. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought it was an incredible documentary. Right. I mean, this is really an amazing documentary. And I know people are talking about it. And yes. if you have not seen it, the Tinder Swindler is yes. on Netflix. And I think you will be aghast at what this uh, swindler did to these women. Mm-hmm. And also you will revel in uh his comeuppance yeah uh, as or, it were. Or, or not or you not know? i don't because, know i mean because i mean you know yeah, i don't want to yeah, we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to give too much away here <laughs> but i would highly recommend the tinder swindler uh to especially for anybody who's on social media dating apps yeah. you know uh that that's all i can say if you're on social media if you're doing dating apps you need to watch this yeah i also i also watched power of the dog which has received 12 academy award nominations oh yeah um and uh jane champion uh directed uh uh benedict uh cumberbatch mm-hmm. and uh kirsten dunst uh and uh you know, this is a beautifully shot film, I have to say. It's absolutely beautiful in its locations. Uh, it's a bit tedious for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but yeah. I watched it, and I would just say to people, because it got nominated by for 12 Academy Awards, you might be interested in, in seeing it. Um, I also finished uh, the book of Boba Fett. Yeah. And I was, I really got into it once the Mandalorian showed up. <laughs> yeah, I have right. to tell you. Yeah, right. I think they could have, well, okay. Well, that, that's all I can say. I don't want to spoil okay. it for anyone else, yeah, but yeah, let's yeah. just get on with it. And, and then I went to the movies last week, Al John. I oh. saw uh, Liam Neeson in Blacklight. Oh, okay. And, you know, I think we talked about this. Uh, I, I'll go see anything with Liam Neeson in well, it. Yeah. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And, you know, I kind of felt like the, this was uh, this wasn't one of his best pictures. I'll tell you that. Paint by numbers. Okay. Was it paint by numbers? Yeah. You know, it was it, it was kind of a, you know, uh, the pacing wasn't quite there for me. Mm. And it was also uh, just a little lightweight. Gotcha. Okay. You know, um, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, but I did watch a documentary, Keith Richards under the influence. And I just thought it was an incredible, really, uh, incredible documentary from the standpoint that it, it, it goes behind the scenes with Keith Richards and, and under the influence has nothing to do with drugs. Right. It has everything to do with music. Yes. Uh, American jazz, blues, and his early influences that really made him sort of one of the great guitarists uh, of the generation. Yeah. 
I yes, one hundred percent. That's good stuff right there. So anyway, there there's some stuff. And by the way, the the Keith Richards documentary, you know, I, I'm not even sure when that was made. It was a number of years ago. Uh, it's not anything recent. Okay. Yep. There there you go. Yeah. Um, I'm like you. I I, I kind of. Um, you know, I've watched a lot of different documentaries and things, but what I will suggest to people to check out is an older documentary. I may have mentioned this in the past, but I watched it again because it's so good. It's Drew, the man behind the poster. Uh, check out the documentary on the legendary movie poster artist, pop culture guy, Drew Struzan. He's probably one of my favorite pop artists of all time. He's made so many great movie posters and everyone from George Lucas to Guillermo del Toro talk about his contributions to the art and film. He's done album covers for Alice Cooper and so many, but you know, he's really known um, as just an amazing movie poster artist back to the future trilogy, star Wars, original trilogy, Indiana Jones, um, all the Ivan Reitman films we'll talk about later, but Drew Streisand really, um, you know, did a bunch of great art for all those, those movies that I love so much. The other thing to, uh, to, to note is I did, you know, finish archive 81 on Netflix. So, uh, feel free to check that out. That series is surreal. It's suspenseful. It is a, is a show talking about some just weird, um, you know, demons and just weird stuff coming through different portals. So if you like that kind of, um, that kind of suspense, um, film. It's uh, a little bit horror, but a lot of suspense. Check out Archive 81, brand new, trending on Netflix right now. So check that out. All and, right. and, you know, by, by the way, one more thing I want to throw out there before we move on to our news segment is uh, the Lord of the Rings trailer that dropped during the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you see that? I did. I saw a mm, few things. I man. mean, it looks very interesting. Speaking of trailers, um, it's not in the news, but uh, you did send me the Chip and Dale trailer. Oh God, <laughs> I, I don't. You know, honestly, let, let's let's not let's not go down that road. Okay, it was, it's horrendous looking. Okay. Oh so, Lord, I know. I right? think we should go to the news. Okay, you you called it. Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave, Disney's jumping back into building residential communities with developers. If everyone uh, wanted to experience what it's like to live on a Disney property, now is another chance for you to do it. You know, they did it not too long ago in celebration. I say not too long ago, but it's been like 30 years. It was in the yeah, 90s. Yeah. You know, with it Disney celebration. Been, it has been a while, but more recently, they've done the Golden Oaks community yeah. in Walt Disney World, which is sold out. By the way, yeah. and I, you know, yeah. this makes sense that they're doing it, but it looks like uh, this past Wednesday they've announced its first development, Catino, a residential community with 1,900 housing units and a single family or single family homes and condos in Southern California's Rancho uh, Rancho Mirage. Have you ever been out there? Yeah, I've been out there. You know, okay. I'm just, I I wonder about this. I I mean, are they going to uh, develop these communities and then once they're built out, they walk away? Or I don't. You know, it, it's I'm not really sure. Like, what what is the structure? And obviously, Disney never does anything without it making money. Mm-hmm. So are they are they building it as a, a housing development and and then once it's done, the the community homeowners association takes over, or do they? 
plan on having, you know, a finger in the pie with owning hotels and retail and, you know, uh, charging, you know, uh, activity fees and things like that. Yeah. This press release is kind of sketchy. Um, yeah. They yeah. talk about how they're developing these type of things with the Disney Imagineers. Uh, Disney Parks chairman Josh Del Maro had mentioned that in a press release. Um, but, you know, there's really nothing else they're, they're talking about other than the fact that they're expanding their storytelling to story living is the yeah. uh, what they're doing. So, I mean, look, it's cool. You want to pay the premium price for Imagineers to design your house? Great more, you know, more work for everybody. That's what I say. That's there you go. Absolutely. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's choice. It's That's right. All. Yeah, it's good. And uh, Disney in the news again, appoints executive to oversee the metaverse strategy. There's a lot of talk about the metaverse. Who's going to be the first to be there. Is it going to be Facebook? Is it going to be Google? But uh, Disney's appointed an executive to specifically lead the entertainment giant strategy for the metaverse, where everything is in combination with each other in a virtual place um yeah you know look i i have said this before i there's a lot of people throwing the word metaverse around and uh i i really believe that there's a lot of executives who don't even know what the metaverse is but they're regurgitating the uh terminology uh because they feel they have to jump on the bandwagon did you so see i think this yeah. is this is you know the the next step in the internet and in virtual reality and all of that so it, it has a ways to go and it's the wild west there's a lot of things that are going to be tried and cast aside there's other things that are going to work beautifully so I, you know, let the experimentation begin. I think Microsoft has got a heads up on everybody when they buy these video game companies developing this kind of stuff. Zuckerberg has doubled down on it. Disney definitely getting into it. But if you've ever seen the movie Ready Player One, Dave, did you see that movie? No, I never did see that. Okay, movie. So go, go see Ready Player One. It's everybody living in this virtual world with VR headsets and they live in a dystopian society and their real reason to get out there and interact with people is really through this virtual reality, which is the metaverse where right. everybody has their own avatar. So let's see who gets there first. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And yeah, speaking, no, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the one thing I will point out is that, you know, Facebook has jumped in and doubled down on this, but they've also lost billions of dollars yes. in investment into it uh, without mm -hmm. it, without a lot to show for it. So, and their stock has gotten hammered oh, yeah. over the last few weeks. So, uh, you know, again, there's a long way for this to, to develop to something that is going to be used uh, uh, with great frequency. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, you, you can speculate all you want about the metaverse, but what I won't speculate about is this Elvis trailer drop. I love this trailer. Check. I, I, I loved it. Yeah, check this out. Or does it just come knocking at your door? There's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. Way 
and the hip shake heard around the world. Right, Dave? There you go. I, <laughs> hey, listen, I, I loved uh, this trailer. I, I looked at it as soon as it, it came across the wire. Mm-hmm. And man, uh, this looks like it's going to be a really incredible film. And what blew me away was Tom Hanks as the Colonel. Yeah. Right. Colonel Parker. Yeah. Wow. Holy yeah. mackerel. That was, I, I had no idea he was working on that. Right. Yeah. So Oscar nominated visionary filmmaker, Boz Lerman. It just amazing. Right. Has yeah. his Warner brothers picture drama Elvis starring Austin Butler, who does an amazing job and Oscar winner, Tom Hanks. The film explores the life and times of Elvis Presley seen through the prism of his complicated relationship with his enigmatic manager, Colonel Tom Parker. The story delivers uh, delves into complex dynamic between Presley and Parker spanning over two decades from Presley's rise to fame and his uh, cultural landscape of, Loss of innocence through America and the central journey is one of the most significant and influential people in Elvis's lives, Priscilla Presley. Um, so there's a lot of stuff here. It's a, um, I guess this is kind of like walk the line in terms of the timeline. It's a truncated biopic um, told by uh, told through the lens of Tom Parker. So um, it looks amazing. It it really does. I'm looking forward to seeing it, you know? Uh, And another thing I'm looking forward to seeing is Chris Pine and the crew of the Star 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 Trek Enterprise coming back. Yeah, there you Uh, go. I was was really thrilled by uh, this news that, you know, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, Simon Pegg, Carl Urban, uh, Zoe Saldana. Yeah, Saldana, yep. Saldana yep. and uh, John Cho yep. uh, are all coming back uh, for uh, a new Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I- I'm a huge Trek fan, so this is going to be fun for me. Um, I thought for sure that um, we'd have brand new Star Trek held uh, by um, um, Quentin Tarantino, but that didn't. That wasn't the case uh, mm. in this time. And uh, uh, it was Anton Yelching who passed away tragically a few years back, of course, who played uh, Scotty's Not Returning, of course. Uh, right. Rest in peace. But uh, we'll see how this works. I mean, any more Star Trek is good Star Trek, in my opinion. That's all. Hey, look, the, we, we have something to look forward to. December 2023. Yep. And I, I'm praying that we will be beyond, well beyond uh, this pandemic. Should get a lot of people in those chairs for sure. That's how about it. this? Another thing I'm looking forward to is one of my favorite comic characters of all time, Bloom County. We talked about this on the show, but it yeah. looks like uh, Berkeley Breathhead's uh, iconic cartoon strip is being developed into an animated series that will come in on current culture with the creator's involvement. And it's going to be on Fox, Fox Animation. So uh, pretty cool. I, I, and by the way, I was very happy to see that this was going to be on Fox mm-hmm. because, you know, Fox has a track record with irreverent uh, series like Bob's Burger and The Simpsons. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just feel as though, you know, this is certainly uh, the place to put that kind of a show. Let the let the filmmakers let the let the showrunner and uh, and Berkeley, you know, just make this make this series, Absolutely. you know, and don't meddle with them. That's right. That's right. Make it as irreverent as it can for sure. 
Speaking of irreverent, uh, you sent me this note here from The Hollywood Reporter, reverent author and commentator P.J. O'Rourke passes away at the age of 74. This uh, prolific author and satirist who refashioned the reverence and gonzo journalism of the 60s, counterculture into a distinctive brand of conservative and libertarian commentary died Tuesday morning. Um what are your thoughts on it? Do you, do you recall yeah. a lot of the stuff he was yeah, you involved know, in? This is, you know, he's he's in in the league with uh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Gotcha. You know, that that gonzo journalism uh, from that period. And, uh, you know, the, the thing I have to say is that when I see somebody passing away in their 70s, mm-hmm. that's young by yeah. today's standard. True. It really is. True. You know? It was very sad uh, to see this, uh, to see him pass away. And, and even more... So with uh, Ivan Reitman, because uh, yeah. we have this next one. Uh, Absolutely. Ivan Reitman passed away this past Sunday at the age of 75. Of course, known for Animal House, Meatball Stripes, and of course, Ghostbusters. And of course, he leaves behind his family. His son, uh, Jason Reitman, ended up doing um, some work with his father, his late father, for the latest Ghostbusters installment. And he will be greatly missed. I mean, his films literally are part of the fabric of my childhood. They they really are. You know, I mean, you know, when when you you know hear the name Ivan Reitman, you immediately think of Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, you know, all of those folks uh, that were in so many of those movies. Mm -hmm. You know, John Belushi. Uh, It's really uh, pretty uh, sad, uh, I have to say, uh, because he was getting ready uh, to do uh, triplets with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito and uh, Tracy Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. From twins. What a great, I mean, yeah. And I really hope, I hope that his son, Jason uh, uh, takes the torch and keeps going with, with, with it and makes that movie. I'm sure he will. Uh, He was brilliant. He learned a lot from his father. So Ivan Reitman, you are a legend and you will certainly be missed. Yes, but he has an amazing body of work that he's left behind that people are going to enjoy for decades to come. That's a fact, Jack. Skull Rock Podcast, women in animation. Skull Rock Podcast, interview time. Well, Al John, uh, I have to say we have a wonderful guest uh, this week, like we do every week. But, you know, every every week we have a guest. I, I want to just just, you know, slather them with accolades. We have Alice Dewey, who I know is Alice Dewey, but Alice Dewey. Goldstone, who's a producer. She was a production manager. She was in musical theater. And uh, I've known her for many, many years, more than I'm going to even admit to. Uh, But Alice, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Our studio audience goes wild every time I guest. <laughs> um, so, Alice, I'm so thrilled to have you on because, uh, you know, we, we talk to different people within the animation industry uh, every week. And uh, you're somebody who came in through musical theater. And I, I want to sort of step back and I always ask our guests this right from the uh, outset. What was your education and how did you get into theater? Well, I, my education, I did my undergraduate work in Madison, Wisconsin, and I studied both theater and teaching. I had an education degree. 
And I thought I was aiming for kind of a university life career. And I taught for a little while and then I went back and I did some graduate work in the University of Texas at Austin. And I was studying with a particular guy that was uh, really inspirational to me. And my degree in that was um, in directing, theater directing. And um, so after that, when I finished at, at UT, I moved to New York and I worked in musical theater about 10 years. And um, well, all kinds of theater, but a lot of musicals as well. And, and what kind of shows did you do on Broadway? And was it all Broadway and off Broadway? Like I always kind of lump it all together, you know? I did a lot of stuff. I did some Broadway shows. I was able to work on Les Mis for a long time. I worked on Amadeus. I did Big River, uh, 42nd Street. But I did a lot of work um, in other theater companies as well, like um, Hartford Stage Company was one of my favorite stops. I did a lot of Shakespeare there and a lot, a lot of new plays. I did new plays in New York as well at Ensemble Studio Theater. And, um, and then I did Summerstock too. I, my summers, I mostly spent in Dallas, Texas doing Summerstock, which is, you know, a new musical every two weeks. Wow. Wow. Now you mentioned 42nd Street. Now, was that the uh, production with Jerry Orbach? It was, but I was on tour. So he was. Oh, so you were on tour. You weren't on the Broadway show. Because I have a funny story about that 42nd Street. I uh, really got uh, immersed into Broadway through that play because a high school friend of mine, uh, his father was in the uh, um, uh, local one. The, uh-huh, the, the stagehand uh, stage and, and his father did spotlights on Broadway. Uh-huh. And, and so his son, Kevin, uh, who I went to high school with, he followed in his father's footsteps. So I sat up in the um, in the ceiling in the spotlight booth and watched. I, I, I think I've, I saw that 42nd Street play with Jerry, Jerry Orbach probably 50 times from in the ceiling. That's a you know? really cool perspective to be <laughs> up know. in the rafters like that. It was pretty amazing. Anyway, but um, so you, awesome. you you did a lot of touring. Uh, I did a lot and, of touring. And when you're in theater, is it is it is it really sort of like a, uh, you're on the road a lot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in fact, uh, I like it. I like it almost better than sitting in New York because, um, you know, you have a new theater every six, eight weeks. So you get new reviews and, you know, everybody gets, you know, a little burst of adrenaline because they don't know where their dressing room is or how do I get to the side of the stage and the spotlight positions are different and the sound is different and it really keeps it fresh and it's, it's so, a lot of fun. So it's like an opening night every two months or something, right? I mean, yeah, like everybody's yeah. Yeah, working towards that. that that's mm-hmm. pretty wild. And, and um, uh, how, how long were you on the road for? I mean, it, it, it must get grueling after a while, right? It depends. Like if you have a nice sit down company like Les Mis, it was pretty livable. And I would typically go ahead of the company and scope out the next city as the production stage manager and plan everything. And then the company would come. So I wasn't on buses as much as I was on planes, which was lovely. Mm. Um, And you typically stay in nice hotels and all that. Yeah, I was going to ask also, you. I, I was going to ask you about that. So, so when you're on the road with a a, a show like Le Mes, everybody just takes over a hotel, and you stay in a hotel for eight weeks, and then move to the next hotel in the next city. Typically, the company manager will give you a choice of two or three before you get to town, and then they provide transportation. Um, if you're there a long time, like a real like Phantom was in L.A. for years, mm. then you you know you get an apartment. So it just right. depends on the tour. I also toured with um, what they call a bus and truck. And that, that was Amadeus. 
and that didn't have the luxury of those longer stays. And so I think I played 90 cities in a year and a half. Wow. And, yeah. and can you explain what a bus and truck tour is? Well, the cast is on a bus and the crew's on a, a sleeper bus and, you know, uh, all the stuff is on the trucks and, you know, you just go and most of that was college town. So you, you know, tear it down at 10 at night, go to sleep on the, on the bus, wake up at the stage door, go in, set up and have a show that night. Really? So it was it like you do one or two shows at a, at a venue and then move to the next one? Yep. Sometimes a lot of, yeah. One nighters were not unusual, although on the weekend, you know, a lot of times you'd sit down, but then you'd have matinees. So it was pretty grueling. Wow. And in there you have to, you know, rehearse your understudies and any kind of new people joining the cast. So it's, oh. it's challenging. Whoa. 90 city. And that's just the U S was that, was that was that? all U S yeah. Wow. Wow. Not college that. towns. Like I said, yeah, yeah, that that's crazy! Holy mackerel! And yeah, you so you're playing, close. you're you're playing like <laughs> two and four thousand seat theaters, like yeah, like yeah. Uh, community college venues and things like that. It would be you know more more the major university towns, and you know a play like Amadeus wouldn't have a big four thousand foot you know four thousand people theater. They just that's a smaller play. Oh, okay, with Les Mis we did. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Um, yeah, I prefer those smaller, those smaller theaters. Wow how how did you how did you go from that to animation? Because I I, I remember you coming in really as I think a production manager or assistant production manager around the time of uh, Prince and the Pauper, Aladdin, like sort of sort of right in that early '90s area. You know, I, I moved to LA. I had met my husband in New York, and he was already working here as a AD in live action. And uh, so he convinced me to come out to L.A. I thought I was going to do theater here, but, you know, there's not so much theater. And a lot of the theater in L.A., the professional theaters, staffed out of New York. Okay. So it was tough. It was a tough way to make a living. And I had known Maureen Donnelly, who you may remember. Oh, yeah. And okay. So Maureen, you know, who'd done uh, Pump Boys and Dinettes and Cats and stuff, uh, she was already working on Little Mermaid. And so she invited me to come over and, and meet with her. And so she brought me in to work on Prince and the Pauper. And I only got to do like the last two months of their calendar. And it was just sort of help kind of push it down the field. And it was the best possible training because I got to do layout for two weeks, animation for two weeks, backgrounds for two weeks, animation check for two weeks, color models for two weeks. I just saw the whole pipeline um, and it was, you know, cell animation. It was yeah. Mickey Mouse, you know, well, and, and that Incredible. that really a lot of people think that the Little Mermaid was the last cell animated film, and it was for a feature. But the right. last, the really last cell animated production was Prince and the Pauper, which was a featurette. That's right. Yeah, and you know, I mean, Andreas and George Scribner, and you know, just fantastic people to be learning from. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, what, what was your, I, I guess, what was your reaction uh, from uh, going from theater into this world of animation? You know, I think a lot of it's very similar in working with the creative process, uh, working with creative people. Mm. 
Um, it didn't strike me from a personality standpoint or a work standpoint as that different, but it just was so slow. <laughs> you know, that was <laughs> the hugest difference. I, it was just hard to understand how anything could be made so slowly. <laughs> I know, it, and, and it is serious. I, I mean, seriously, I, I think the audience has to realize, I mean, you could spend... Like I, I know on some productions, we, we had drawings that would take, you know, six or eight hours to complete a drawing, just right. one drawing. And so, you know, when you've got a, a battery of artists that are working on something, sometimes they're only producing a few drawings a day. Well, and, you know, and to sit in sweatbox with George Scribner and, you know, he would give these great animation notes, but it might be, you know, two weeks before you saw the fix come through yeah. And he'd almost forget what he said or why, you know, it, it, that was hard for me. You know, when, in theater, if a director gives a note, the actor runs across the stage in a different way and you can decide if you like it or not. Yeah. So it, that was a big change. I had to really adjust <laughs> my thinking about that. And, and, and you, you actually came in after the big success of, um, uh, the little mermaid and, uh, and beauty and the beast, I guess. No, not beauty. Oh, no, beauty was in production at that time. That's right. Concurrently, yeah. Have, yeah. You've actually pegged it very well. I My interview with Maureen um, and George was literally the day after they won the Oscar for Mermaid. For, for Mermaid, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a real turning point because you had Alan uh, Mankin and Howard Ashman, uh, who really were Broadway guys, especially Howard, uh, Howard Ashman. And and they they really brought the, the stage musical, if you will, to animation with The Little Mermaid. And it, and it yeah. sort of just took off from there, right? I mean, that, absolutely. I mean, and, that was that's what convinced me to want to work there. You know, I yeah. saw Little Mermaid. It was like the best musical I'd seen in years. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, I think at that point there were a lot of theater people cause Peter Schneider had come in from the theater and he was president of animation. And then Tom Schumacher came in and the, all these guys were, were from the theater world. So, so you That's had, right. and I, I have to be honest with you, you know, so, some of the folks that came in were like, white as sheets because of like the <laughs> looming deadline and the amount of work that needed to be done. And, and, and we always were kind of walking around like, oh, yeah, we'll get it done. It, it, it'll get done. You know, so we were, there was we a were, culture clash. There was, Yeah. and I was so grateful because I had people like Ed Gombert and, yeah. you know, these great animators working with me that, you know, I thought of them as actors and, and writers and, you know, they really taught me, really how to make this culture my own. Well, I mean, I think there is a, a correlation though, because the stage Definitely. actors are the animators, uh, you know, layout and background. Those are the set designers. designers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you just go on and on from there. Absolutely so, right. Um, and what was it, what was it like, uh, you, you kind of got thrown in, uh, to the fire on, uh, Prince of the Pauper. Cause like you said, there was two months left. So you got to see everything, but did, were you able to catch your breath, uh, on the next project, Aladdin, because you went right yeah. from an assistant production manager to a production manager. Right. And, and of course, Aladdin was, um, I, I was lucky to be on Aladdin very early. So when I came on, it was, you know, Don Ernst was producing, John and Ron were there directing. And I think they had an office assistant that Sue Blanchard was there. Mm -hmm. Eric Goldberg was doing some test animation and, you know, Howard and Alan. 
And it was, you know, we had the old version of Aladdin with the gang that they were adapting at that point. Yeah. And, you know, and beauty was ongoing. And so I could go over and see my future in a way, you know, visiting Baker Bloodworth and Sarah MacArthur over on uh, Beauty and the Beast. And it was very helpful to see a production in motion while mine was you know, still in development. Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, getting onto a project that early, it's a little slower. You get to sort of absorb things a little bit more. Was that the sense you got from it? Yeah, I think so. And, and I got to wear more hats, you know, in the beginning until we really staffed up. You know, it was just kind of on on me. And, and you know, it was great because I got to be in all the meetings and kind of see how things worked. Yeah. And was there anything surprising to you? Uh, uh, on that project or, you know, just early on for you? You know, I think that, you know, everybody would say the same thing. The thing about Aladdin that was so difficult was Howard, yeah, you know, Howard. As, as inspirational as he was and as gifted and tr tremendously talented as he was, he was quite ill during it. So, you know, the first few songs came in quite early and that's why Prince Ali got into production right away. But some of the other songs like um, One Jump, and the other ones that, uh, you know, that Alan ended up writing with Tim Rice were like squeaking it at the very end because yeah. we couldn't, we couldn't make a decision about composers and I mean, lyricists until things had all played out and it was, you know, it was horrible. Yeah. And, and, so and hard. I, I, Howard passed away during production. Um, so, and, and I think everybody wants to be sensitive to that. Uh, but at the same time, you're looking at, you know, trying to hit a deadline and, you know, all of that. So, yeah, I mean, and he, you know, he had tremendous involvement with beauty still, you know, so that was his priority and it, it yeah. was, it was very tricky, yeah. but um, gosh, you know, it was lovely to have at least that one exposure to working with him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was pretty amazing. And I, and I do want to remind our listeners, they can, uh, they can see Don Hahn's documentary on Howard Ashman, which is playing on Disney plus. And if you haven't seen it, it it's amazing. It, it really is a, a it's, fantastic. It, it's an incredible tribute to the guy and, and, and all that he accomplished in, in a short amount of time, really, you know, cause sure. yeah. So, uh, but, um, uh, I think Aladdin to me was was kind of the sweet spot of uh, of that renaissance because you had you had this sort of success of uh, uh, of the Little Mermaid and, and also around that time you had American Tale from the Don Bluth Studios produced right. by Steven Spielberg and you had Who Framed Roger Rabbit and that right. kind of was the 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 ignition point if you will of that renaissance but once you once um, uh, Beauty and the Beast went out and, uh, and, you know, got nominated for a best picture and then Aladdin came out and it was, it, it grossed even more than Beauty and the Beast. It was, it was, it was really like people were starting to turn their heads were turning like, wow, you know, animation is, is back in the game. And, and a lot of studios started setting up shop. I know sometimes I, I remember talking with Roy Disney about that era I think maybe this is a quote, but I, I sort of remember him saying to me, if you had reordered Aladdin, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, any which way, it probably all would have still led to that big success with Lion King. Yes. That they all just, they all were a stepwise 
Yeah, and, and it really was, a, a, each one was a step up from the previous one, but you could have scrambled it and it still would have been each one being a step up to the next one until you hit Lion King. And even though everybody said a Lion King was the anomaly, like they, you you don't expect to keep going, everybody expected it to keep going. They sure did. <laughs> um, Ron and John used to tell the story about when Little Mermaid came out, they were always thinking that people would see the matinee because they'd only run it in the evenings for a week or maybe two at yeah. the most. And then it was just matinees for kids. It was a kiddie movie. Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine that now. You know, and, and, and you know, I remember the excitement of reports coming in on Beauty and the Beast when that opened, that that they were filling theaters in the evening because, right. because it was it was a date movie. It became a date movie. Yeah, right. Al, John, didn't you take your future wife to uh, to, to see Beauty and the Beast as a date? Huh? I, I did take some uh, high school girls uh, on dates there, but not my future oh, wife. Oh, it wasn't your wife. It wasn't your future wife. Okay, let's not talk about that. No, no. But we did. We did go to the to see the movies separately, but not together in different right. schools. <laughs> Dave's getting me in trouble, Alice. I, you know, looking back at Aladdin, I would say the, the biggest excitement for me on Aladdin was just the stylization, you know, that really cool line, that, that thick and thin line that Ron and John love and, and working with Eric Goldberg and all that whole team. And I was literally, my office was next to Glenn Keane's office. Yeah. And, you know, Glenn would just have throngs of animators, you know, just always at his door, look at my scene, look at my scene. And, you know, and we brought people in to dance in those, you know, MC Hammer pants. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was really, it was a fun time. Yeah. And and, uh, and you bring up a good point because there, there was on a lot of those films, um, there were dancers and actors that were brought in onto sort of insert stages where they were videotaped uh, going through dance routines and stuff uh, as reference for the animators, right? That's right. Yeah, we did a lot of that. Ron and John really subscribed to that. And uh, especially on Hercules. Oh, my gosh. You know, all those muses and all that stuff was choreographed and costumed. And we did tons of reference. And, and, and you went you went from uh, Aladdin, um, I, I guess, before I leave Aladdin, I want to ask you, like, do you have any, like, favorite behind-the-scenes stories that either were a surprise, fun, or, you know, nail-biting, you know, anything that comes to mind? I'd love to hear it. Oh, I'm trying to think of something ahead. Um, one thing I can, I think of Aladdin right off, I, I remember the day that we got um, this little cassette tape that we all got to take home and listen to a whole new world. And it was just this rough demo that Alan did. And I just remember putting it in my car or my little Honda Accord or whatever it was. <laughs> and, you know, you just knew, you just knew this was going to be the, the whole movie. You know, this opened up kind of the whole love story and, you know, it was fantastic. Just, I, I, I do think it's exciting when you hear those demos. And I oftentimes have thought to myself, wow, 
I like the demo better than the finished song sometimes, you know? And, and by the way, that was very true for Colors of the Wind on Pocahontas. Uh-huh. I remember hearing the, the first demo they did of that, and I just loved it. I just thought it was so fantastic that when I finally heard the finished version of it, I liked it, but I kept thinking, boy, I really like that uh, demo. The energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what happened with Lion King. We had a demo of Circle of Life from uh, Carmen, what's her name? Carmen, I can't remember. And uh, she was just the demo singer. Yeah. And we went through all these French, you know, singers from Mali and all kinds of people from Africa, just tons and tons of people auditioned. We tried all these different people and we went back to the demo singer. Wow. Yeah, that, that's usually the case, isn't it? That's pretty amazing. But you went from Aladdin then to associate producer on Lion King. What was that like? Right. Well, obviously it was a huge step up and, you know, it was, uh, I don't know if you know the story, but I was the fifth associate producer on the Lion King. No, I, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, uh, if you don't mind, because, you know, this often <laughs> happens throughout productions. Now, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Sometimes people come in and they're just not the right fit or they come in and then they get something else. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, they, you know, they had been underway for a little bit in development when it was King of the Jungle. And um, they were just having a hard time kind of getting their motor started. The script was coming along great, but just the the engine behind the the movie wasn't quite working yet. And um, I was just very lucky that when I finished Aladdin, the timing was right. And so Peter asked me personally if I would, if I would do it. And of course I was so flattered. But, you know, at that point, that was the movie no one wanted to be on. Everybody wanted to be on Pocahontas. That, that, and, that's uh, very true. And and I think our audience should know that um, uh, in the midst of production, while, while Lion King was in pre-production and getting going, there was an awful lot of artists who were just like, I think I'm going to bypass uh, Lion King. I want to go on to Pocahontas. And it was a lot of people wanting to go on to Pocahontas. And of course, they weren't going to be able to take everybody on to Pocahontas because you really had to have those sort of two crews going. Uh, that was yeah. the new thing, right? Yeah, people yeah. used to be able to go one to the next, but this time we were trying to do two at once, yeah. um, you know, because they wanted more, more releases. Yeah. And I think also there was some feeling that while well, Glenn Keane went on to Pocahontas, so that's the A movie, um, it, Lion King had at that point um, a summer release date. And so people said, oh, it's a B movie. You know, the, 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 yeah. a, t- a, a spot is the holiday release. Yeah. yeah. Pocahontas had that at that point, which of course all changed later anyway. But um, yeah, nobody wanted to be on King of the Jungle. It just wasn't getting any steam up. And um, so anyway, fortunately it all turned around and, you know, with, with me and Don and the creative team we had, Dan St. Pierre, Andy Gaskell, you know, we just got it all going. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and as, I think it's very true that sometimes the most troubled productions oftentimes turn out to be the greatest productions. And that was certainly the case with the Lion King. The Lion King was definitely not easy. And, you know, not only did we have trouble attracting people to it, but, you know, I always say the story of the movie is a little bit the story of the production because so many people had leadership roles for the very first time. Yeah. You know, you think about Tony Bancroft and Mike Surya, they they had never been leads before. Yeah. And quite a few people were in that boat. Um, even our leadership, um, like Doug Ball and Scott Santoro, they, it was, they were new to this. Yeah. And so, 
you know, they were all like little Simbas, you know, just coming up and God, they just killed it. You know, it was fantastic to see all these people step up and really be strong leaders in that role. Yeah, no, it's it's very true, and uh, and I think also uh, that that particular picture was was really sort of the high point of the '90s as far as box office gross goes, because right. I think I think after that there was a lot of other companies starting to put their wares out into the theaters, and so there was more more competition for for those for sure. dollars, you know. In fact, Lion King, I think, had a run and then in the summer and then they re-released it. Like they took it out of the theaters and then they put it back in the theaters. Yeah. It's pretty unusual. Yeah. Do you remember at all when when uh, when they started talking about doing Lion King as a Broadway show? I do. I do. It was a few years later and um, and maybe Peter and Tom had always thought about it, given their their backgrounds. I'm sure that they had been. But yeah, it was pretty thrilling. And of course, you know, Roger and Irene Mecki, the writer, sure. have to be very involved in the whole creative. Because, you know, a, a Broadway show needs more than 85 minutes. Right, so, right. Yeah. So you, yeah. you really need a, a two-act for, structure and a whole Yeah, for, 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 the, for the price you're paying for those tickets, uh, yeah, people are expecting story. a good two-hour spectacle, right? For sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you really are. Uh, were, were, you, were, were you at all surprised? I know some people when, when I guess it was Jeffrey or Michael Eisner uh, first, I guess it was Michael Eisner who suggested that they do Lion King as a Broadway show. Were, were, were you surprised by that at all? I know some people were like, what? Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? You know? No, I wasn't. No, I mean, I, the idea that you could do it though, cre- creatively, I couldn't imagine how they could do it compared to say doing something like Beauty and the Beast, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so the idea of bringing Julie Taymor and the, and the puppets, which I believe was Tom and Peter's idea, um, that was, that was the thing that cracked it open. Yeah. I, I mean, I still find it amazing that I guess it's all, it's been, like the stage show has been running for 25 years. I think Tom told me once that like every hour of every day, there's a production of the Lion King someplace in the world where the curtain's going up. Well, that was my experience on Les Mis too. You know, it, it was a very, it's very unusual to have yeah. that experience. And, uh, yeah, Lion King for sure, and it, it's a very international show anyway because it's so well known and it's so visual. Yeah. So from so you you did this sort of you know assistant production manager, production manager, associate producer, and then bang, they give you a producer position for Hercules with Ron and John. And, right. And, and some of the other people that came over from theater, like Amy Pell and Jim Pentecost. Yeah. They went right into those slots easily. Yeah. For me, you know, I, I was glad I had a little bit more of a, uh, you know, time to kind of get a little seasoned and how the, how the sausage is made, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> you, you were certainly in the trenches uh, for a number, a number of projects, uh, which I think is, you know, like you said, it, 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 it seasons you. It really does. You, you really get to see, you know, on a granular level uh, how, how a production is being put together and how, how it's you know, being done. I mean, I'm sure you stood and looked over somebody's shoulder as they were doing drawings at some point, right? That's right. Of course. And, you know, I did the rounds with, you know, for the animators and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. You know, certainly I like the people, you know, if I'm still doing animation, you know, the people are are awesome. And so that was, that was great. And, you know, 
hats off to the other people that could just step in and take the the helm. But for me, I needed that seasoning. Yeah. Did, did you did you feel like your your education in becoming a potential potentially becoming a teacher? Did did you feel like any of that kind of came in handy with dealing with the artists? Because really, I mean, I kind of always felt that we were all a bunch of like children half the time, you know, uh, pulling pranks and having fun and laughing and all of that kind of stuff. I know it's funny you should say that. I- I often think that having a teaching background and I I've taught school since I was even in animation. Um, I really think that the training is very similar yeah. and the skill set's pretty similar. And it's not that, you know, they're childlike or anything. It's that, you know, it's all about material and how do you present it in a stepwise way that everybody can get on board and go sure. on that journey together to learn it or process it in some way. So, yeah, I think the skill set's very similar. Yeah. But I, I would still say that we're we were a bunch of children, you know, a lot of us anyway. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. That was half the fun, though. <laughs> so I, so I do for, have a funny Lion King yeah. story, though. Uh, well, I have a couple of them. But yeah. uh, when I started on Hercules, we were um, lucky enough to travel to Greece and Turkey to do our sort of scouting. And uh, Ron and John were so happy because, of course, with Little Mermaid, they didn't get to do anything like that. And, Aladdin was during the first Gulf War, so that didn't get them anywhere. So here was their their big trip, you know. And uh, so I had asked the artist that came with us not to wear any kind of Disney clothes. Yeah, there was a time where we, we were kind of nervous about being, you know, I don't know, just being, we wanted to be kind of low-key blended. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, here I've got this brain trust I'm traveling with, you know, it was uh, high stakes for me. So I told them, please don't wear anything. So anyway, one day we're out in Turkey and we're at this place called Ephesus and it's gorgeous and it's not organized like a big tourist trap would be, you know, it's just like these Greek ruins in the middle of a field with sheep running around, you know, and you can touch everything. There's not even signs or sidewalks or ropes or anything. And uh, so we the people were all sketching a little bit and Barry Johnson had a Lion King t-shirt on and it was just like the logo. It was just like them going over the, the log and he was sketching there. And so was Andy Gaskell. And uh, suddenly a school group came in and they, these kids come off a bus in their little uniforms, two by two and walk around. And suddenly I heard one of them say, Aslan Kral. And they went flying toward us and just surrounding us, surrounding us, like freaking out. And I forgot that, you know, Aslan is lion in uh, Turkish. Uh. And so I guess the crawl must be king. And uh, they were just they had to do these drawings and hand them out to get the kids to kind of quiet down. And you just, it was so potent, you know, the reach of that production, we were like really in the middle of nowhere in Turkey in the hills. Crazy. It's really something else with Lion King. Do you recall how many languages the film was dubbed into? I think it was 37 or something. And, yeah. you know, you know, I think it was the only one that was in Zulu. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Did did they do a special premiere down in South Africa? Not that I know of. Yeah. I might not have known about. Right, right. So from from Lion King, you said you had another you had a couple other stories on Lion King related or Well, Lion King for me is, you know, like I said, so much about the people stepping into those leadership roles, but also the the challenge of the earthquake. I mean, that 94 oh, earthquake yes. about did us in. We came out the summer and the earthquake was in January. Yeah. 
and it was bad. It, it was, was bad. It, it was bad. I, I, I believe me, I vividly remember. And I was so thankful that that Peter um, uh, got a bunch of rooms at the old Red Lion Inn in Glendale, in Glendale. Which, was, which was sort That's of right. down down the road from from where where the animation studio was and, and allowed some of us who were really impacted uh, to come down and actually shower, you know, because right. we had we, there was a broken man. Main, uh, water main in our neighborhood and we didn't have water for several weeks after that earthquake wow. you know and then the commute in was like I think initially Already. it was like two three hours to get through the pass where the freeway had collapsed so but I mean Max Howard was a big part of that whole kind of war room that we did we called every single person on our show twice within the first three days to make sure yeah. they were okay yeah and see what they needed we were shipping out PAs with batteries and blankets and water mm. and little animation desks and scenes. And, oh my gosh. And then we opened school. Do you remember we had like daycare because schools were closed and yeah, that was crazy. And, and still, you know, the building was shaking with aftershocks and people were yeah. still trying to draw. It was, that was really, really crazy. Yeah, that that was that was insane when that whole thing happened, and and, and it's amazing how uh, how how uh, everybody was resilient and 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 just kind oh, of pulled you know pulled together and and still got the show done. It's amazing. It was amazing, and on yeah. top of it, um, we started previewing. I don't know for sure, but around that time, maybe Marchish, and. Uh, Nobody really knew that it was that funny until we previewed it. And, you know, the previews were fantastic. And so you may remember that at that point, the, the big jokes were coming from Pumbaa and Timon. Yeah. And they didn't have that much screen time up to then. So we were back in boarding and writing and giving more work to those two teams, particularly. And that song, um, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, had gone from being only Simban Nala to only Timon and Pumbaa singing. And then finally in the, in the last version that you all saw was in that hybrid where Pumbaa and Timon introduced the song just to take a little bit of the curse off the ballad. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I, I have a lot of fond memories, uh, because I didn't work on the entire film, but I worked on part of it. And I remember being, I went down to Florida for six weeks. Oh, you did? Yeah. I I worked on Lion King down, down at the Orlando studio. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Wow. They were Uh, awesome. That was a great studio. I was just in Walt Disney world a month ago. uh Uh-huh. And I spent a lot of time in Hollywood studios and it just brought back so many memories of the really first rate artists that were down oh, there. They, they, they did a, ter- a lot on Lion yeah. King. They had a terrific team down there, you know, and, and, you know, we've had, we had Max on the show last year and Aaron blaze. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about that studio because there was a really incredible talent pool down there. Really, really uh, great. Group well, you know, people. we had the, you know, little Simba lead was down there, Yeah, you know, not little Nala too from Aaron. Yeah. And, and, and also Mark Hen was down there. Yeah. He did yeah. Simba. Yeah. So, yeah. It's amazing. So from Lion King, you uh, get handed the producer reins for Hercules. That's right. I, I, so we went, one thing you made me think of with Mark Hen when we were um, 
I don't know. I think it was Lion King. Sometimes on a Friday, you'd need to get your numbers, you know? Oh, yeah. And so it's, always, counting- it's always it's always about the numbers and the audience should know the numbers <laughs> are it's the footage. It's how much production footage each department has turned out, because that's really uh, the only way you can track towards your goal of finishing a movie. Right. That's right. And so and in, if you don't get the numbers, the next department's going to sit on their hands because you have to keep the inventory. Right flowing and you have to have enough choices and so on. But sometimes on a Friday, we would be a little short in animation. And so typically Mark would send his scenes, you know, on the shot on the down shooter on a Thursday over on a FedEx and we'd be able to look at them and we'd have the drawings ready to go into cleanup. But if we were really short, we would tell him just shoot it and email it to us and the directors will count it and we'll get the scene over the weekend. <laughs> and so if, if Mark was going to do that, cause you could always count on Mark for a little extra footage we'd have to tell everybody in the studio to stop emailing because, you know, it would take so much space up. Yeah. So we'd all wait, we'd wait for this thing to kind of, you know, this little bubble would go around and around and then Mark Seam would come in and we'd hit our numbers. Yeah. Mark, Isn't that crazy Mark, to think? Yeah. No, it, it, it's amazing though, because Mark Han was, uh, was one of those animators who really could turn out a lot of footage weekly in comparison to the average uh, uh, amount of footage that came out of the, you know, the, the animation team, Mark was always like many feet ahead of that. He had a knack. And of course it was fantastic work yeah. as well. No, it really was terrific. When, when you got onto Hercules with Ron and John, you were, you were basically right at the beginning of, uh, of the project, right? Where, when, oh, yeah. Oh yeah. They had written a script. Yeah, that uh, was going pretty well um, as a template. And uh, other than that, I don't think there was anybody on. We weren't cast or anything. Yeah. So can can you talk a little bit about that process? Because uh, typically you'll have a, a director or a directing team who will develop a project. And in, in this case with Ron and John, they're writing a script. Uh, and, and as soon as uh, who, like, who's the person that's going to say, yes, we're going to do this movie. That's when they then assign a producer to that team. That's right. So and you like, may remember that, that, um, it was Joe, I'm going to forget his name all of a sudden. Hadar, Joe Hadar. Oh, Joe Hadar. Yeah. The animator. In a gong show. Yes. He pitched Hercules in a gong show. Yeah. And that was in that way they got ideas from the staff and, uh, so Ron and John took that on and wrote that first draft from there. And, um, you know, then it was greenlit. And so I was brought in. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, you, you mentioned the gong show just for our listeners. The, the gong show was, was, was sort of a tongue in cheek after the old Chuck Barris gong show that used to be on television and, and they would do it maybe once a year. Uh, and they, anybody in the animation studio, you, you could be the receptionist, the secretary, um, you know, it didn't matter who you were, you could get your, I think it was three minutes. If I remember correctly, you had a maximum of three minutes to stand up and you stood up in front of Michael Eisner. Uh, I know on the early ones, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Peter Schneider, Roy Disney. I don't know who else. Tom, I think was uh, For sure, Tom, yeah. Tom, Tom uh, Schumacher. And you got to pitch to this panel of uh, very high powered individuals. Uh, and, and my favorite gong show pitch that I remember was Mike Gabriel, who, who had a pe- beautiful piece of art of an Indian princess 
with the word Pocahontas above it. And he just stood up and he said, Walt Disney Pictures presents Pocahontas. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was minimal amount of wordage that he used. And he had a piece of art and they were like, Pocahontas, that's a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) That was true. You could do art, you could do a pitch, you could do a song, you could do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so cool. yeah. And, and so it's kind of neat that Hercules was, was not uh, the only one, but it was a, a number of, pro, uh, of uh, pictures came out of those gong shows. So yeah. Hercules, Joe Hadar pitched Hercules. Did, were you there for that pitch? No, I was not. Uh, okay. But, but that gave Ron and John the idea. And right. did, did Joe right. Hadar work on that picture? I think he did animate on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so once you got attached to it, what was the next step? Well, we started working uh, with some other writers that we brought in to kind of help punch it up. Uh, Don and Don and Bob, these comedy guys. That was really fun. And then we started the voice casting process. Uh, we had a couple animators in early doing some design work. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the most interesting part of, of Hercules was um, working with Gerald Scarf at mm, that point. Yeah, great Gerald illustrator. Scarf was, you know, he was um, the newspaper, uh, what do you call those? Cartoonist. Cartoonist. He was a newspaper yeah. cartoonist for yeah. the, the London Times and, um, and album covers and sets for operas and big yeah. stage rock shows like The Wall. And so very interesting guy. And uh, we got to be probably best buddies. He he has a studio in London, and his desk is the biggest drawing desk you've ever seen. And it's it's slanted, and it's like a, like a door, right? Like the size of a door. Yeah. And it's like three stories high. It's on the top of a townhouse, and he draws from his shoulder. So his, oh. his everything that he sent us was like a poster. We wow. never got anything that was smaller than you know. <laughs> 30 by 30. And, um, so it was great. He had such energy to his drawings and, um, the animators were a little bit nervous about that. How do I take that single drawing energy into 24 frames a second? So they weren't sure they could actually produce anything that looked like that. So we ended up after he designed it all and, and the directors were really happy with what he'd done. We ended up, this is back in the day, right? When we had all this money, we took the the lead animators and Ron and John and me and a couple other people to the Biltmore in Santa Barbara, and we like locked ourselves in a big room for you know three four days, and we just drew we just drew and drew and they you know Andreas particularly was concerned about it for Hercules, and how and Gerald would look at his drawings and then Andreas would draw and then Gerald would draw back and forth and we got things all over the wall and we got to a point where we could animate what we came up with. So, so really it was distilling Gerald Scarf's style into an animatable style. Correct. Uh, Something production friendly. That that he was happy with, but also was something that the team could handle. That's right. Yeah. And it was really fun to see because, you know, it was a little bit of a negotiation. Yeah. Because Gerald wanted that, you know, that sharpness to it. Um, but the animators were, you know, a little bit nervous about, you know, you know what this means each week to what we have to do. Yeah. So it was back and forth. And ultimately we would send um, videos and um, I guess drawings 
key drawings to Gerald and he would fax us back oh drawovers. Yeah. Sack, in no the sacks. early days. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm dating myself again, but uh, so he stayed pretty involved in the early days of the animation just to kind of make sure that stayed in there. Yeah. Yeah. We sent him dailies all the way through. And I think one of the big concerns, if I recall correctly, was the uh, line work, how much right. line work there was going to be on the characters, because the more lines you put on a character, the more time it takes to do the drawings, which translates into a larger crew. That's I mean, right. Ultimately. Yeah, just pencil mileage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there was just so much drawing that you would have to do. So it was managing that. And, and it wasn't so much uh, the, the, um, the, the color part of it. Right. No. Uh, because with the with the cap system, the computer animation production system, they could change any line they wanted to whatever color they wanted it to be. Um, right. and, mm -hmm. and so it, it was it, that was less of an issue as it uh, because it would have been more of an issue if you were still doing cell animation where you had to hand, sure. hand ink all of that stuff. Right. Right. So, right, right. yeah. So and again, that was a negotiation. Right. How much line work you would put on it a was, character. Yeah, much could yeah. you do and then you know if you had that much line work can you have you know we would count how many characters were in a shot yeah you know yeah. sometimes you had to maybe pair a few characters out of a shot yeah did you um uh on, on hercules because that was your first uh, full full producing gig um was there any point in the production where you just sort of start to you know uh get nervous and you're feeling like my gosh we're like four months from this deadline, oh hell yeah right <laughs> i mean cause, cause, and, and and that's a bit of a loaded question because i know what the answer is having gone through all of these productions because i think there's there's always that moment but it's different for every person but there is a moment where you sort of sit up one day and go, we're, we're not going to get this film done. You say that to yourself, even if you say it to yourself, just, you know, you're, you're saying it in your head. It's those crazy voices that are saying, you're never going to get this done. It's never going to happen. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and John, John Musker and Ron Clements had their, um, you know, their credibility. They produced so many great films there already. Yeah. And uh, so I think Peter felt like he would back them up in what they wanted to do. And it was an ambitious movie. So when we did get to the point where it seemed like we weren't going to do it, we had the, not only this, the, um, the studio in France working on it, yeah. they did huge parts of the stuff with the Titans at the end. Oh, All I, that was I, I, I didn't even realize that. that so Paul and Gaetan, uh, Britzy. Well, it was it was uh, Sergio uh -huh. Pablos and yeah. and and Borja Montaro and okay. oh, kind of, a whole lot of people. I don't know yeah. if the Britsies were still there. I think they had come to L.A. by then and were working on another project. But um, uh, you know what they they were they were working on Fantasia, right? Yeah, yeah, they were working on Firebird. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, do we have great people? So you know. As much as I would have loved to work with the Britsies too. Yeah. That whole studio was full of talent. What, so that what, was fun. I got to go to Paris a whole lot. What was the Orlando studio still open at that point? I don't remember. They were, they, but they were doing uh, Milan. Uh, they were doing their own picture. That's right. Yeah. Mulan was they the first picture you know? that was, yeah, that they did completely down in Orlando. Yeah. Wow. And on top of that, Dave, you may not know this, but there's a little segment of the movie where the fates look into the eyeball and, uh -huh. and you see them kind of forecast. 
that was all done in London by, oh boy, it was a little tiny animation company that John knew. So they took, you know, some footage from us as well. Wow. That, so, and, and because Gerald was there, we were visiting London quite a bit. So we got these fantastic trips to, to Europe. You know, I was in New York a lot because of Alan and, and, uh, and Glenn Slater. And then also, you know, and not Glenn Slater, uh, David Zippel. Yeah. David Zippel, oh, such a clever lyricist. He went on the trip with us to Greece and Turkey as well. That that uh, now uh, talk about that trip a little bit because how early on uh, did you organize that trip and how long was it? What countries did you go to? Well, I was lucky because so often on these trips, those people don't end up making the movie. But um, in our case, everybody that went on that trip stayed and finished the movie. So I felt really good about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Greece for about four or five days, and then we went to Turkey for longer. The Greek ruins in Turkey are in better shape than they are in Greece. Really? And the reason for that, it turns out, is that Greece has very little arable land. And so they need the land and those ancient things, they protected some, but not every little thing. And in Turkey, it's a, obviously a bigger country for one thing. But also, most of the ruins were built on the western coastline. And over time, since the early ancient days, the coastline has moved some 30 miles. Wow. So they're not on the coastline anymore. So they're safe. They're not, you know, being torn down for development. So they're, they're just incredible in Turkey. Amazing. Amazing. How far out of Istanbul? We went to Istanbul just to kind of, you know, home base. And I got to go to Hagia Sophia. What was it called? I, the big mosque there before they've taken yeah, it away. I, I know what you're talking about, but Agia I'm not, Sophia. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. <laughs> oh, that was incredible. Anyway, we spent very little time in Istanbul and then we went to um, Ishmir and uh, Marmaris. Mm. So more on the coast, more rocky. We were thinking about some of these, um, these crypts that are built into the cliffs as yeah. ideas for Hades and on the underworld. So we spent some time there and we even went on a sailing junket for two days out wow. at sea. It was wow. great. And the guy that took us uh, was quite, quite unique. He, he wasn't a typical tour guide. He really understood that we were there to scout. So we wanted to have ability to take pictures and draw early in the day and later in the day when the light was best, you know? Yeah. So we would do that. We'd get up and get out and see these things and then have fantastic lunches. He knew all these kind of local touristy <laughs> places, non-touristy places. And then again, late afternoon, do a lot of sketching and stuff. So it was really a, quite a trip. We went to an island up in Scopolis and were there for Greek Easter. How, how, really important, quite a trip. how important do you do you view those types of trips? Because I, I think some, some people think it's sort of like a boondoggle, uh, but I, I, I think it's... 100% you know, no. Yeah, I think it's like I mean, amazing. the mosaics in yeah. Hercules are all from these friezes and mosaics we saw. Uh, Meg's garden, we have pictures right. of that whole garden right in Greece. Um, we understood how the cities worked, how the pathways worked. I think, you know, particularly for David Zippel as a lyricist, it gave him a ton of ideas. Um, and Andy Gaskell, too, as our art director. So much. So, 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 so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, we went to Delphi. You know, yeah. it was very inspirational. 
I, I do think that, you know, those types of experiences have, have a serious impact on a production. Uh, if you can take your Definitely. key, your key members of your team to an actual location, it, it, I think it's hugely important uh, for, for the look of the movie and, and really for the success of the film. Uh, you know, I, it, it's like, you're not faking it. You're not trying to take it out of national geographic magazine. Right, right. You're actually immersing, immersing yourself into the culture and the environments. Authentic. Uh, yeah, it, right. it is authentic, yeah. you know, and I that's think right. that's uh, that's something that continues to carry forward. Do, do you guys still do that? I mean, like, have you done that on films that you've done outside of Disney? Uh, have you done any of no. those kinds of trips? Because nobody, want, nobody wants to finance them, right? Nope. nope. Yeah. So you got the I Internet think, now. Yeah, I know, we'll but it it's not yeah. the same. It it's really not is not the same. the same. I mean, you know, you, you went on to produce Home on the Range, but I'm going to jump forward a little bit because you currently produced uh, Hotel Transylvania 4, the yeah. tra Transformania. <laughs> and yeah. I, I would have thought going to like uh, Romania and, you know, Transylvania <laughs> uh, before you did a film like that would right. be inspiring, you know? It would have been. <laughs> would have been but then again it was a four i know okay i i give you that <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty part i've never uh, worked on a sequel before it was very interesting quite a, quite a different process well it's a, it's established characters right i yeah. mean yeah, yeah. So. it's a fun film yeah. i enjoyed it oh thanks so much we had fun making it yeah i mean it's it's i mean the, the kids of course my kids love it you know but then it's like hey wait a minute i think i know that producer at least i will be <laughs> <laughs> which will be great because yeah i mean it's the fourth film in a in a, a very successful franchise and so very it's great and you've worked on you know and you've worked on a lot of other films you know um as well that are that are great like i i saw wonder park with the kids as well uh. and wonder park i think has got a lot of heart i really really like the story and my wife and i were like oh look at this, this little girl and her imagination and all the stuff it's a the, beautiful moment everything coming to life and it's like i can see our little girl being that same girl and hopefully being inspired by that so it's a very very cool film oh thanks for saying so it was, it was a troubled production but i thought it, it was a beautiful film yeah you, you pulled so, it out i'm, I'm going to pull us back for a second because I, I i don't want to skip over home on the range Thank you. Because because Home on the Range, um, uh, I think started out, if I'm not mistaken, as sweating bullets. That's right. Right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and again, this is this is the sort of the uh, the process really is putting movies up uh, on storyboards, uh, building reels, and when things aren't working, tearing them down and putting them up again, and sometimes changing personnel out. Uh, that that particular film, as I recall, uh, and, and and when that was in production, by the way, I was already onto the special projects. I was I was doing special projects at the company at that point, but uh, but watching from afar, there, there just seemed to be a lot of early turmoil on that project uh but it ultimately came together and he, yeah i think it, there was um there were a lot of reasons for that trouble but uh you know the idea certainly was from mike gabriel and mike giamo and their love for that era and that, yeah. uh, you know and and i just i loved working with them and you know some of the artwork that uh they they produce for visual development is just so beautiful 
and Christy Maltese too, as our, as our head of background. So it was really, the development phase was wonderful. There was a lot of administrative changes at the time at the company. Yeah. As I'm sure you remember. Yeah. Yeah. And that made it a little tricky. Um, and I think the story team was never really behind that story. The story yeah. of a, a young horse who wanted not to, uh, sorry, a young cow that didn't want to be following the herd and wanted to be like the horse buck. That was the original story. And bullets was the name of this little cow. Yeah. And it, I, you know, it was a good story. And, and, um, you know, slim at that point, the villain was, was a skinny skeleton. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it all changed. I think the story team just felt like, you know, we've done this coming of age story a million times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, and that is, it, 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 it's a bit tricky. I think with any project that you're, you're trying not to um, uh, do retreads uh, right. or, or, you know, t- t- tackling similar themes uh, as you did previously uh, because the, I mean, there's enough films that go out. Uh, I think that have derivative that are derivative of other pictures, you know? Um, and so, it may have been a fair charge, you know, I, I can't, yeah. I can't debate that, but it, it was definitely unraveling everything. So you know, even Joe Ramped came in and tried to help us for yeah. some time there, you know, and, yeah. You know, Ed Gombert and so many people tried and, and it, we ended up just really kind of redoing it um, with the story of the, the three cows. Yeah. And, you know, it was a sweet story. I, I think the thing I liked best about that movie was the music. I, I loved working with Bonnie Raitt and Katie mm-hmm. Lang. I mean, yeah. just fantastic music. And, and, and also, I think the style of the film is, is, is really too. fun. You know, it's a really just a very fun style. That's Mike Giamma's um, stamp. Yeah. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Without question. Mm-hmm. Without question. Um, <clears throat> but I we're, we're bumping up on time here. I, I do want to f- ask you, like, what what's what's in the future for Alice Dewey Goldstone? Uh, <laughs> it's so hard for me to I, I'm almost tripping over Goldstone because I just want to say, what's in the future for Alice Dewey? No, but what is in the future for you? You've just finished Hotel Transylvania four. What, what like what do you want to do? What are you doing? And certainly if you can't talk about it, please do talk about it uh, and tell us uh, things that aren't, aren't supposed to be out of the bag yet. Uh, we always like to break the news here on our, our show. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm very lucky and I'm, I'm, I'm working again on a project with Andy Tartakovsky. You know, he's, he's really animation cartooniness, you know, defined. And um, so I am doing another show with Andy and it's uh, 2D. Oh, Whoa. nice. Yeah, and interesting. I can't say any more than that. No, no, I, I, you know, something. I, I look. We're. I think all of us get hit with the question of what do you think about two D? Will it is it dead and all this? And my pat answer is no, it's not dead, uh, because all you have to do is go see, uh, like you know, um, uh, the Mitchells wow. versus well, the Mitchells versus the Machines. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. they're integrating two uh, D elements right. into a CG film or uh, Spider Man uh, into the Spider Verse, uh, the animated one uh beautifully done i mean i think that made a lot of people in the industry turn their heads so to me 2d isn't finished uh it's never gonna go away 
in fact, if you look at the Academy Award nominated shorts, uh, there's a beautiful one called uh, Affairs of the Arts. Uh, and uh, that's all hand-drawn. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So 2D is, is, is a technique that's never going away. The question is, will it come back in a big way? Uh, in feature film. And you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm going to reserve uh, judgment here because I, I do think that somebody's going to come along when you see films like Wolf Walker uh, right. last year or uh, Book of Kells or. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I just Bob's, love Klaus. I love Bob, so much. Yeah. Klaus, Klaus was another one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and also uh, uh, Bob's Burgers, the movie is coming soon. <laughs> 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 yeah, so that's fantastic. So you're going you're continuing to produce. I am. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. And Tartakovsky's that's awesome too, by the way. I have to say because I was a big fan of his through like the Samurai Jack slash Clone Wars stuff he did for for Warner Brothers and and Lucasfilm. So it's great that you right. guys are partnering up again. That's awesome. Yeah, he's he's quite a character, and, and, and he, he certainly love he loves animation. I mean, to sit in dailies with him. You get schooled, you know, because yeah. he's drawing the whole time, and it's he's fantastic. What uh, is that being done through Sony? Yeah, or, yeah, okay. So you're based at Sony. Yeah. Are you are you going into the office yet, or are you still working all at home? You're doing everything from home. home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, do you, do you think you'll be going back to the office anytime soon? Uh, have you heard anything? Probably not, because I moved to Washington. Oh, are you in, in the state of Washington? <laughs> Are you really? That's a pretty good reaction. No wow. kidding. I'm surprised. I'm like, what are you? I'm like, you know, I just marvel though, because, you know, earlier you were joking about fax machines and telling people not <laughs> to right. send emails because you're waiting That's for a right. big file to come into the studio. <laughs> and here we are, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. You're in the state of Washington and Al John is in Nashville, Nashville. Tennessee. And yeah. we're all having this wonderful conversation. I just love it. All of hotel. Tell too, I made from here. I'm telling wow. you, anybody who thinks the internet is a fad is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I went down for, I, I did spend, you know, all the post production in LA, and that's sure. a lot of fun. But sure. you know, production yeah. and pre production, you can do. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think during this pandemic, the animation industry as a whole really was was almost unaffected uh, because we were so lucky because everybody could work at home and just send files, you know, and and so you know, work on Centiques and and all of that. And I think really probably the only thing early on was just the logistics of getting some equipment to people's you know houses and stuff, right? I mean, that's probably Yeah, editing editing took a little while to get really synced up with, but they did it, you know? Yeah. That's fantastic. When did you move up to Washington? Um, fall of 2020. Wow. That's amazing. And was it pandemic driven? Partly. Uh, my daughter goes to college up here. Uh-huh. And, uh, so the, you know, we had gone, we'd gone into work from home in March, I guess. And I thought it would be six, eight weeks, you know, but it kept going. And then we brought her back to school in the fall. And I thought, well, let's look around. Maybe someday we'll move up here too. Cause it's so beautiful. Yeah. And, um, and then I, we realized, you know, when we found a house that we liked, there's why, why are we staying in LA? We can work here. Yeah. And if they open the studio up again, we'll figure it out. You know, I'll get an apartment or something. Was it hard for you to move? 
In terms of just uh, mentally, mentally, not not the no. physical actual moving. Did no. did you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving my home base and all of that? No, no, you, you never felt that way. I really love it here, and yeah. you know, I I'm there now and then, and I keep up with all my friends. Sure. I see everybody on the internet, you know, when we're right. zooming. So yeah. you know, I I really I almost feel like I'm staying in some nice Airbnb, and I'm going to go back anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, that's good to know. You it know, works easily. Yeah. You know, the hard part was I had to kind of pack and go without seeing a lot of people in person. Yeah, because yeah. of the pandemic. You know, we were in lockdown. So when we had the the Hotel Transylvania post production time, yeah. and we had a screening for the cast and crew, yeah. I got to really see a lot of people then. Wow, that that is awesome. That is so awesome. That was great. Yeah, that was wow. Nice. Well, that that gives me hope, you know. Although I just I, I keep looking at my house and I and I just feel like, my God, I just don't want to even want to tackle cleaning this place out. It's like the clown house. It's just <laughs> like stuff is shoved everywhere. Every crevice of this house has artwork stacked in it, and it's just nuts. When you get a closing date, it all kind of happens. You, know? you, you just have to you do have it, I guess. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. I don't know. I'm, I don't I'm, know. I'm I mean, still... LA was great to me. I have nothing yeah. bad to say about LA. Yeah. It's just it's time for a new adventure, especially yeah. during lockdown. You know, now we can, you know, it's, it's just really revitalizing that a whole but, place to go but, explore. Early on, you said you went, you took a show and went through 90 cities in the U.S. Right. And how long did you actually stay in L.A. at one place? 30 years. 30 years? Is it that long? Yeah. Wow. And now you're uh, a little over a year up in Washington. Right, right. Okay. Is this the forever house? Is this it? Oh, who knows? You don't know. I never said that. You won't commit. You won't commit to that. Okay. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) No, who knows? Well, Alice, it was absolutely wonderful chatting with you and catching up. Uh, and I have to say, um, I uh, it's just uh, an amazing uh, run, you know. You're and you're still doing, you're, and I'm just blown away. You're producing movies from Washington, fabulous. <laughs> you know, pretty well, soon. You know, I've been really lucky with who I got to work with, you yeah. know, and that that made it very special. I learned a lot from those those early days, and then kept those friendships and yeah yeah i feel very fortunate i i think it's amazing because i i think the pandemic has just kind of thrust it forward that you can actually do animation production virtually uh you could have people all over the world and you could actually put a movie together so i, I think, think with 2d i'm gonna have to yeah I know, really. I mean, you know, it's it's a little tricky staffing it. Yeah, everybody scattered to the winds. Well, uh, well, I enjoyed it very much, Dave. Good to see you. Yeah, it was great to to meet you. It it was it was absolutely wonderful to have you on, Alice Dewey Goldstone. Sorry, Mister Goldstone. It's just hard (laughs) for me to keep saying that. But Alice Dewey. Goldstone, uh, producer extraordinaire. Thank you for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Thank you. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow. Another great segment with producer Alice Dewey. 
Amazing. You know, I, and, and really one of the great women of animation today. And uh, I was so glad we could get her on the show and, and chat with her. Really enjoyed some of those behind the scenes stories uh, on Hercules and and Lion King. And uh, it was just really uh, great, great to have her. Yeah, absolutely. Alice Dewey Goldstone, I should say. Um, don't forget to please check out the link in the show notes and um, check out where you can find her. And, uh, you know, once again, just a great inspiration for anyone getting into animation, especially for females uh, that are out there looking to get into animation. But now absolutely. we've got uh, awesome shows. I know that we have planned. I know Dave doesn't want to spill the beans on a lot of that stuff, but uh, can't wait for these upcoming shows. I never want to spill the beans. Uh, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I will, but you know, we, we've got some great guests coming up in, in the next couple of months. It's just, uh, it's so uh, exciting to have uh, folks, uh, you know, I reach out to people and they just absolutely say yes right away. They want to come on board because they know that we have a really good show here, you know, yeah. and we're, we're documenting and, and, and pulling stories out of people uh, for uh, our listeners enjoyment absolutely it's all about animation pop culture disney and we thank you so much for sticking around and listening to the end of the show don't forget to like share and subscribe to the show if you just stumbled upon us on every podcast platform once again also on iHeartRadio, source of radio by the way turning 22 years this week what? dave 22 really? years we're the oldest running fan run station the lou mongellos of the world the nathan roses of the world they all started they all started in Sorcerer Radio, and uh, I'm still we're still glad to be part of it. So thank you for being having us in Skull Rock Podcast be part of your 22 year uh, and being number one as fan run streaming station Sorcerer Radio. So thank you. Uh, you can also check out the Skull Rock Podcast show page on srsounds.com on Sorcerer Radio's page as we are a friend of the network. Uh, and there's so many great Disney shows to check out there as well from all around the world. So please check that out. Uh, at any rate, feel free to email Dave and myself, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Dave, I leave you with our final words. Well, a couple of things real quick. I just want to point out that I have a new book uh, for pre-order, uh, the House of the Future book. Uh, you can find the campaign on Indiegogo. So Al John will put that in the show notes. Uh, check it out. See if that's of interest to you. Uh, I also want to just say, as I always do, peace and love to all of you. Go out, have a great week. And we look forward to having you back here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go, 
I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Source Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.